There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. by the Spirit of our God. As we uh, wrap up today's series, before I introduce our speaker, let me direct your attention to the Word of God. If you have a Bible in front of you or a Bible app, let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, for our scripture reading for this morning. And as you're turning there, I would invite you to stand, if you're able, in honor of God's Word as we read verses 1 through 22 for you. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the Apostles." Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you that say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come 
also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's my great privilege to introduce to you today Clint Watkins, one of our world partners at Millington Baptist Church. Clint and his wife Jillian are missionaries with Disciple Makers, a ministry that goes to secular colleges to share the gospel uh, with the young adults there. They introduce students to Jesus, equip them to handle God's word, and train them to be disciples who make disciples wherever they go. Clint and Jillian live with their son, Conley, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they minister at three different schools, Lebanon Valley College, Elizabethtown College, and Thaddeus Stevens College. Please join me in a warm welcome for our own brother in Christ, Clint Watkins. Good morning. It's good to see a lot of faces I don't recognize because I, uh, I grew up, y- you all look great. Uh, I grew up across the parking lot before that building was put up. There was a yellow house there and uh, grew up causing havoc across the parking lot. We'll share a little bit more about that as we get into it. Um, right now, so my wife and son are en route to NBC. Right now, you're stuck with the beast without the beauties. So... Uh, We'll, we'll bear this together. Uh, but if you would keep 1 Corinthians 15 open, uh, we're going to touch on, it's a very long passage. We, we only had 22 verses read, but we are going to touch on the whole chapter. So if you would keep that open, we're going to look down, look up, uh, and we'll, we'll just be there in a, a few minutes. Uh, but I first wanted to, to share with you about a different book that I'm reading. And it is a uh, comprehensive critique on religion. It's written by a man named Christopher Hitchens, who, when he was alive, didn't call himself simply an atheist. He was an anti-theist. Now, the difference between an atheist and an anti-theist is there is a way in which atheists and religious people can coexist. You know, you don't necessarily always bother each other, but an anti-theist is someone who is determined to oppose and dismantle religious belief. And you can see that in the very title of Hitchens' book. The title of his book is God is Not Great. God is Not Great. Even if you look at the, uh, the, the cover, the word God is made the smallest word on the title, and I think that's intentional. That's how not great Hitchens thinks God is. And you might think I'm a little weird for admitting that I am thoroughly enjoying this book. Hitchens is funny, he's brilliant. Now, some of you might find his irreverence and his sarcasm a little offensive, but I find it refreshingly honest and consistent with his worldview. And not only does he know the Bible well, he raises uh, really good questions and challenges our faith in really pointed ways that I think many Christians ought to wrestle with. But his subtitle of this book is particularly relevant as we end our series in 1 Corinthians. The full title of his book is this, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Religion poisons everything. It's quite a different perspective than what we've been saying as we journey through 1 Corinthians. What has been said from up front is that we live in a toxic world and that this contamination can only be cleansed by Jesus Christ. Hitchens, however, says the opposite. The world is fine. Religion is toxic. 
And one particular frustration that he has with religious people is that they won't leave non-religious people alone. In other words, he hated evangelism. Listen to how he describes evangelism as a toxic practice. He says this, leave me alone. But this religion is ultimately incapable of doing. As I write these words and as you read them, people of faith are, in their different ways, planning your and my destruction and the destruction of all the hard-won human attainments that I've touched upon. Religion poisons everything. So Hitchens' complaint, at least at this point in his book, is that religious people, Christians especially, can't leave other people alone. (laughs) And he says this is destructive because it spreads spiritual poison everywhere. It's contagious in a bad way. Now, it may surprise you to hear that in some ways, the Apostle Paul would agree with the anti-theist Hitchens. You see, Paul would agree with Hitchens on one condition, if the resurrection was not true. If there is no resurrection, what we'll see, Paul says Christian faith is useless, it's empty, it's the most pitiable belief system out there. If the resurrection didn't happen, in Hitchens' terms, we can see in 1 Corinthians 15, Christianity does poison everything. However, if Jesus did rise, it changes everything. So this morning, we're going to finish up our series, Detoxicity, our time in 1 Corinthians, by looking at the complete detox, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to consider, as Paul does, what's at stake if the resurrection didn't happen, and what changes if there is an empty tomb. So first, I want to look at uh, how Paul addresses this, this question of the resurrection by pointing out, if Jesus didn't rise, then we will have an empty life. Notice verse 12. He, he addresses the problem in the, the Corinthian church. He says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? And so he's, he's going to deal with that issue. And I wanted to highlight three repercussions that he points out if there is no resurrection. The first is this. If there's no resurrection, sin is victorious. If there's no resurrection, sin is victorious. Look down in verse 17. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Think about that phrase. You're still in your sins. That may be a short sentence, but that is a haunting reality. If we are still in our sins, that has both a frightening condition and a frightening consequence. The condition is this. Look at that word in. He says you are in your sins. What he's saying is that's something you cannot change. Like we use the word in as a location. We're in the sanctuary. We'll be on the parking lot later. We'll be in the heat. So we'll get in our cars, in air conditioning, in our homes. We are in a particular place. But as Paul talks about sin, he's not saying that this is a location that you can change. You cannot walk out on your sinful condition. 
You cannot change it. And that leads to dire consequences. You see, this series has has highlighted, the Detoxicity series has highlighted how the gospel offers a solution to sin's toxicity. But if there is no resurrection, there is no detox from sin. So I wanted to, to recap a little bit the sermon series. If this is your first time, you'll, you'll get a picture of what you can listen to if you want to go back and listen to the, the different topics. Uh, but I want to do a recap as if there is no resurrection. So this is an anti-review, okay? So let's start with toxic culture. Go all the way back to week one. If there's no resurrection, we will always be poisoned by culture and we will always be toxic to culture. If there's no resurrection, with toxic leadership, any power we get will be abused and tainted by our sin, and we won't be able to trust anyone in leadership over us. Toxic communities, without the resurrection, harmony is a dream that will never come true. It'll never be possible, and our disunity in the church will continue to damage our witness. How about toxic romance? Without resurrection hope, Purity will always be polluted, and intimacy will never be sweet. Without the resurrection, with toxic disagreements, you'll never be able to get along with people you don't see eye to eye with. Toxic worship, there will always be division, disorder, the worship wars will never end. And toxic spirituality, as Paul talks about arrogance and pride, we will never Stop thinking we're better than others. Or on the flip side, we'll never stop feeling like we never measure up. I hate to be a downer, but if there's no resurrection, this sermon series has been a waste of time. Without the resurrection, the tomb is not empty. We have no hope for sin's destruction. Sin is victorious, and confronting the toxicity of sins is a pointless endeavor. Both the sins that we face, the sins our community faces, the sins that culture faces. Without resurrection, we're poisoned forever. And it gets worse. No resurrection means that sin is victorious, which means then that the second thing, death is final. Death is final. See, throughout this whole section, throughout this whole letter in 1 Corinthians 15 in particular, Paul emphasizes what is true if Jesus didn't rise. And you see it in these two phrases. Verse 12, he says, no resurrection from the dead. He says it again in verse 13. Then look at the end of 15, the phrase, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, the dead are not raised. Paul is drumming this reality into our souls. If there's no resurrection, death is final. Death is final. Death is final. There's no hope beyond the grave. He goes on to say in verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Think about that word perish. Many of us here probably memorize John 3.16. You remember that word perish in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. If there's no resurrection, memorizing that verse was a waste of time because all will perish. Death is final. He sums it up succinctly in verse 22. Look at this four-word phrase in the middle of the verse. In Adam, all die. We are all in Adam. We have a direct lineage to Adam. You know what? He left us an inheritance. Isn't that nice of him? But his inheritance is not a trust fund. It's not an estate. It's not a nice check that you can go cash. The inheritance that he left us was the punishment for sin. Death. In Adam, all die. Now, people uh, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our culture, have very different opinions and beliefs on what happens after we die. I'll spare you uh, Christopher Hitchens' perspective on what happens after the grave, but there's a host of beliefs out there on the afterlife. However, despite all the different beliefs out there, we have all collectively endeavored to do everything we can to extend life and delay death. And to be honest, we've actually done a decent job. Since the 1700s, global life expectancy has more than doubled. It used to be 29 years old. That means I'd be getting the senior citizen discount. 29 years old, but now it's 72. This is due in part because of significant medical advancements and technology. Almost 90% of healthcare spending goes towards treating chronic diseases and illnesses. Societies around the world have fixated on finding cures for long-term illnesses. And this is all a good and worthy but desperate attempt to improve the quality of life and extend the duration of life. But we've taken it a step further. Not only do we want to extend life, we want to extend youth. And so researchers are doing whatever they can to slow down aging. And hundreds of billions of dollars get poured into the anti-aging industry every year to make people look younger, feel younger, move younger. We'll see some of that out in the park today. We have makeup, surgery, nutrition, supplements, exercise. Unfortunately, hundreds of billions of dollars couldn't do anything to keep the hair on top of my head. But whether it's healthcare, beauty products, technology, exercise, nutrition, surgery, whatever it is, we desperately grasp to prolong our youth, extend our lives, and delay our deaths. But no discoveries in research, no sum of money, no amount of intelligence, no advancement in technology will ever be able to avoid the inevitable. In Adam, all die. Without the resurrection, death is final. If Jesus didn't rise, sin is victorious, death is final, and the third repercussion is this, faith is worthless. Look at verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, what we believe and what we proclaim is empty. It holds no weight. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised. 
whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. That word misrepresenting, like he's not saying we, we kind of get it wrong. Like we, we just, you know, we got most of it right. Misrepresenting, that word means to be a false witness. You don't want to be a false witness if you're in the Bible. Critique and condemnation all over the place for false witnesses. And what Paul's saying is, if there's no resurrection, that's what the Christian faith is. It is a false witness about God. He goes on, verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Not only is it empty, it is useless. Faith is useless. And that's why, look at his strong conclusion in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Think about what he's saying there. All people all belief systems, all seven billion people, Christians are the most to be pitied if the resurrection didn't happen. We have the most pitiable belief system if Jesus did not rise. We've gotten it all wrong. Believing this, practicing this, sharing this with others. It's not just a waste of a sermon series. This is a waste of time and money and energy and memorizing Bible verses. This has all been a hoax and a waste of time. If there's no resurrection, sin is victorious, death is final, faith is worthless. If there's no resurrection, Christianity is like cotton candy. It may look sweet, it may taste good, but in the end, it's just sugary fluff with no substance. That's what Paul is saying. Feel the tension of why the resurrection is so important. So how do we apply this? I really wrestled with, how do we relate to this? Because Paul was addressing a specific question that was uh, being raised in the Corinthian church. There were some people there who were saying, Jesus didn't rise, there's no resurrection. Chances are, there aren't too many people in this room who claim to be a Christian and simultaneously deny the resurrection. It kind of comes with the territory these days. Like Pastor Dave didn't call me up and say, hey, we have a we have a contingency of people who are denying the resurrection. Can you come and preach about the resurrection? No, it just doesn't happen these days. You know, the, some of these people's theology hadn't been worked out by thousands of years. So what do we do with this? You might be tempted to just skip by it and say, well, I believe in the resurrection, so I'm good. However, Paul doesn't let us off that easy. I appreciate how Paul applies this for himself later on in the chapter, and I wanted to share that with you. If you look down to verse 30, Paul speaks about his own experience in ministry, and he says this, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying here is he and his ministry team have been pouring themselves out to make disciples. They're taking risks, they're suffering, they're facing opposition. And he's saying, what's the point in sharing the gospel if Jesus didn't rise? What's the point of sacrificing for the sake of the Lord if the tomb isn't empty? Why bother living sacrificially if there's no hope beyond the grave? If sin is victorious, if death is final, if faith is worthless, 
let's just party. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, if the tomb isn't empty, just live it up. I like how John Piper explains this part of the passage. He says, if there is no resurrection, what makes sense is middle-class moderation to maximize earthly pleasures. If there's no resurrection, what makes sense is middle-class moderation to maximize earthly pleasures. So here's, here's what, uh, where I see an application for those of us who believe in the resurrection. We may believe the resurrection on paper, but functionally there are pockets in our lives that are not shaped by the resurrection. And what Paul is pointing out is one of the primary places that that is true is in struggling for the sake of the gospel. One of the primary places that you can identify that you don't functionally believe in the resurrection is living for the sake of gospel advancement and instead pursuing middle-class moderation to maximize earthly pleasures. So here's a question, uh, uh, one that we should all struggle with and, and wrestle with. Where do you choose momentary satisfaction instead of missional struggle? Where do you choose momentary satisfaction instead of missional struggle? Now, momentary satisfaction isn't inherently wrong or evil. There are many non-sinful, good, and holy ways to experience joy and happiness in this life. But when we run to those things instead of living for the gospel, that is evidence that we are not living under the truth of the resurrection. What we say in that moment when we avoid living for the Lord and pursue temporary pleasure, we're saying that our temporary comfort is more important than our eternal calling. In that moment, what we're saying is the resurrection is irrelevant. So where do you choose momentary satisfaction instead of missional struggle? It may be the way that you spend your money, withholding opportunities to advance the gospel with the gifts that God gave you. It may be the way that you spend your time, avoiding open doors to share Jesus with your neighbors. It may be the way that you protect your reputation, not, being wanting, not wanting to be perceived as that weird person that believes that the dead are raised. It may be the way that you cling to comfort, not wanting to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Where do you choose momentary satisfaction over missional struggle? Here's one seemingly mundane way that it plays out in my life. So it's fairly normal in our culture to, to ask someone what they do for a living. It's kind of like the get to know you 101. What do you do? And so I have an automatic gospel opportunity in the chamber ready to go when someone asks me what I do. I'm a missionary. <laughs> I am in ministry on secular college campuses. So if you boil down what I do for a living, I share Jesus with people. I could literally sum it up that way. And sharing that could be a perfect opportunity to identify with Christ, to talk about the gospel, and then to ask the other person what they believe. Perfect gospel opportunity. However, I can't tell you how many times I have sidestepped that for the sake of being comfortable. 
I have even called what I do working for a faith-based nonprofit. That is shirking responsibility and really trying to be general. And it's not like I'm being persecuted. I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> or I've even shared that, you know, we, we focus on leadership development or, you know, we try to talk to people who are interested in spiritual things. Like, I try to soften it as much as I can when I want to avoid missional struggle. Now, sometimes I'm trying to be winsome to build the relationship, but far too many times it has been the momentary satisfaction of protecting my comfort and reputation in that moment. What I do when I'm, when I'm doing that is I'm saying that the resurrection is irrelevant. So where are the places where you make similar choices and decisions? When we do this, when we live and proclaim that the resurrection is irrelevant, we're saying that sin is victorious, death is final, faith is is worthless, and it will always lead to an empty life. But Paul says Christ was raised. And so instead of leading and living an empty life, we can look to an empty tomb to see how it changes everything. I wanted to point your attention to the first section of 1 Corinthians 15. We won't have time to look into all of it, but I wanted to particularly point out how Paul roots the reality of the resurrection in scripture and historical evidence. And that's really important for for both Christians and non-Christians to wrestle with. In particular, in this section, verses five through seven, you'll notice that he mentions people by name. And in verse six, he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. What he's saying is there is provable historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's verified by evidence and proof. It's not just this this fluffy dream that we have. It is an earthy historical reality that we stake this claim on. And so I want to challenge you, if, if you've never investigated the resurrection of Jesus... Maybe you're wrestling with whether or not this thing is just cotton candy. Look at the resurrection. Look for the biblical and extra biblical evidence that Jesus rose. Or if you are a Christian and you've never looked into it, please do. It is a robust reminder that Jesus did rise, that the tomb is empty. But I wanted to spend our time looking at how the empty tomb reverses what we just talked about. We said that without the resurrection, sin is victorious, but with an empty tomb, sin is defeated. And Paul highlights a number of different realities that give us hope. The first is this. If sin is defeated, that means that we have justification. We are forgiven from sin and our debt is paid. Look at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Remember, nothing you could do could change your condition or circumstances. Nothing you could do can change the consequences of your sinfulness. But Jesus, in your place, paid the price. Christ died for your sins. The, The price has been paid. And when the price is paid for anything, you're, you're normally handed a receipt. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I have my credit card and debit card hooked up to my emails. So I'm 
regularly getting flooded with purchases and, and reminded of, of this is what you bought, this is how much money you spent, you should be ashamed of yourself, here's another Amazon order fulfilled, I have that receipt in my inbox, a countless, countless, countless receipts. And what the resurrection is, is a receipt for your justification. The price has been paid. You have that reminder in your inbox constantly. You're justified. Christ died for our sins. And this justification leads to liberation. We're not just forgiven, but we're freed in a unique way to admit our sins. Look at how Paul talks about himself in verse 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you notice the honesty and humility that he speaks with? Least, unworthy, and he brings up his past sins. But look at what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, it would be easy to misread that statement because the way we use that phrase in our culture, I am what I am. It's kind of like, deal with it. I am what I am. It's an ex- almost an excuse for something that you don't want to bear responsibility for. But Paul's saying the opposite. He's saying, this is who I was, but because of God's grace, I am what I am. I've been transformed. And this frees Paul to be honest about his shortcomings, his mistakes, and his sin. This liberates him. This erases his pride, and it frees him to admit his sin. The reason why this is important is this series of detoxicity. It's so easy that when we're thinking about the toxic sin in our world, in our culture, in our communities, it is so easy to just point the finger. And what Paul is saying is, without the grace of God, I'm the problem too. It's by grace that we have been saved. And so that frees us, that liberates us to speak honestly about our shortcomings and our sins, both individually and corporately. That liberation then leads to motivation. Because Paul doesn't say, well, the grace of God just lets you keep sinning as you would want to. No, The resurrection fuels our sanctification. It helps us to fight sin. Look down at verse 34. Paul, at this point in the chapter, is getting a little energetic, and he says to the Corinthian church, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. He's saying, wake up. Stop sinning. The resurrection fuels our sanctification, What we do matters. What we say matters. How we live matters. Instead of indulging our cravings and sinful desires, we are called to obey the Lord. But resurrection doesn't simply mean that obedience is necessary. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that obedience is possible. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in those who are in Christ, giving us the ability to fight sin. So wake up. Stop sinning. The resurrection motivates us to keep fighting our sin. Your obedience is possible. The resurrection 
is our ammunition. Now, the last hopeful reality of sin's defeat is anticipation. Assurance to overcome sin. Our victory is sure. Look at verse 51 down at the end of the chapter. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Resurrection promises renewal. Resurrection promises renewal. Our creaking bodies, our balding heads are going to be restored. And more than our bodies, but our sinful hearts are going to be renovated. The sinful habits you struggle with, the selfish impulses that don't seem to go away, the resurrection promises that one day our battle will end. Listen to his promise in 57. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, through Jesus Christ, gives us the victory. Not because of our power, not because of our abilities, but because of the grace and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but it can be so sad sometimes to see the way that sin ravages the world around us, the way that sin still makes its toxic entrance into our hearts and then overflows into our words and our actions. But the resurrection assures us that sin will not win in the end. Our debt is paid, our pride is erased, our obedience is possible, and our victory is sure. You know, when I come back to Millington, it is tempting for me to walk through those doors with my tail between my legs. Now, I'm not exaggerating that I continue to hear stories of my foolishness and ridiculousness of what I did on this property growing up. And honestly, we can laugh about it now, and if you didn't know me growing up, you have been spared, thank the Lord, But it seems like I hear a new story every time, and uh, it is fun to laugh and joke. Uh, But honestly, I have a lot of reasons to be ashamed of my past, because a lot of the things that I did growing up, people here who knew me don't even know the half of. Do you ever feel ashamed or guilty, particularly walking into a group of spiritual people? The resurrection proclaims that there is no more guilt or condemnation. You do not have to walk through the doors ashamed or guilty. You've been freed. We've been forgiven. And the resurrection proclaims that reality. Sin is defeated. That leads to the second reality, that death is temporary. Without the resurrection, death is final, but Because of the resurrection, death is temporary. Look at how Paul describes those who have passed away in verse 20. He says at the end, he calls them those who have fallen asleep. And he uses that word sleep a few times in this chapter. Consider the significance of that phrase, those who have fallen asleep. He's not softening death. You know, the way that we do, we we talk about people who have passed away, people who are no longer with us. We soften it to make it a little bit more palatable because death is just so cold and so rigid and so cruel. 
But Paul isn't softening death when he says fallen asleep. He's redefining the term. For those who are in Christ, death is fundamentally changed. The resurrection changes everything. Death is temporary. For those who are in Christ, death is just a nap. Now, it's important to understand what this doesn't mean. Because I've even been personally affected by sometimes a overly triumphant posture towards death. I mean, if you look down at verse 54 and 55, you're probably familiar with this phrase, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's often a triumphant, defiant chorus that we sing in the face of death. But if you look at verse 54, Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's talking about the future resurrection, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. He's saying this chorus of defiant singing in death's face is a reality in the future that we will sing. Now, the reason why that's important is for you who are grieving or you who feel death's sting, you've lost someone recently or you're dealing with loss in different ways, it can be tempting to think that you need to scream this in the face of your losses. But Paul says, no, no, that is coming one day when Jesus returns. We can grieve. Paul says we grieve, but we grieve with hope. And so the, the, the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of the gospel is that it holds space for honesty in the face of death's sting and hope that it will one day lose its sting. I mean, think about Jesus in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. He knows resurrection is coming and yet what does he do? He weeps. Resurrection makes space for honesty but also drives us to hope. Because, as Paul says, for those who are in Christ, death is temporary. Death without the resurrection is a period. It ends the sentence. It ends the story. But the resurrection turns that into a comma. It's a pause. It stings. But death is not the end of the story. Death is temporary. Healthcare the anti-aging industry, hundreds of billions of dollars, promise what only the resurrection can guarantee. Death will be swallowed up. It's temporary. And that's why Paul lands us on this conclusion that faith is everything. Without the resurrection, faith is worthless, but because of the resurrection, faith is everything. Look at what he says in verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So after this extensive 57-verse argument for the resurrection and its purpose, he lands in verse 58 by saying, be steadfast, keep going, keep working hard for the Lord. It's worth it. Keep fighting your sin, it's worth it. Keep loving others like Jesus, it's worth it. Keep sharing the gospel with others, 
it's worth it. I don't know about you, but, but even under the banner of the resurrection, faith can feel so pointless at times. I think about this regularly when I'm week in and week out in a study room in the corner of a library on campus with a few students reading a couple thousand year old book. What difference is this making? But Paul is saying, Jesus rose. So it makes all of the difference. It is worth it. Sin's toxicity may still damage our lives and world, but it'll be defeated. It will not win. Death's poison may still sting our hearts and souls, but it will not have the final word. And faith may at times feel foolish. But the empty tomb declares that your work in the Lord is not in vain. So labor for the Lord with hope. Labor for the Lord with hope. You know, earlier I did an anti-review. All the ways that if the resurrection didn't happen, here's why we can have no faith. But I just want to share with you a few stories of how I'm seeing the resurrection change things. Recently, uh, friends of ours came over just this week because they're going through a season of significant struggle in their marriage, dealing with anger and apathy, and it's been going on for a really long time of constant tension. But they're not throwing in the towel. Not because they want a better life here and now, but because they serve a suffering and risen Savior. The empty tomb is motivating them and motivates us to fight hard for relationships that feel like they're coming apart. I think of our friends who are also on staff with Disciple Makers who a few years ago adopted a few children from Eastern Europe. And they have uh, very significant special needs. Before the adoption, a doctor actually said that it was worst case scenario, medically speaking. Even in the court, uh, when, they, when they adopted their first two children, the judge asked questions that basically said, why are you doing this? My friend Brian said this in an interview. He said, these are children that may never leave our home. They're gonna be with us for the rest of our lives. But even if the rest of my life is spent painfully serving, bending myself over to love these kids, that's a worthwhile cause in the scope of eternity. It's a worthwhile cause because the tomb is empty. It's worth it to painfully love and serve those around you. Other friends of mine, students who went through our our ministry at at the trade school that we minister at, this guy Tyler, he said that his dream has always been to use his skills and trades for the sake of the gospel. And now he and his wife are raising support to go work at an airport hangar in the middle of Ohio to service and inspect airplanes that take missionaries and resources to the corners of the earth. It's worth it to use your skills, your gifts, and your occupation to advance the gospel. The most exciting story for me is just coming back to Millington Baptist and seeing familiar faces who dealt with me growing up. I mean, you could have seen me in elementary school and been like, that's not a worthwhile cause. (laughs) But the Lord has been faithful through decades and decades of you all serving the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain. Whether it's Sunday school 
VBS, showing up for worship, being plugged into a small group, serving your community, sharing the gospel in the workplace, loving like Jesus loves, whatever it is, the resurrection proclaims that your labor is not in vain. So keep going. Keep working hard. Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Labor with hope. I'm gonna close us in prayer and call the, the worship team up to, to close us in a song. And I wanted you to pay attention to the lyrics of this song because it is such a good resurrection song focusing on our call to live for the Lord and his will. So let me pray and then we're gonna close with that song. Our Father in heaven, would you help us live in light of the resurrection? So often it is easy to feel hopeless in the wake of sin, in the face of death, and in the little ways that we step out in faith. But we know that we stand under the banner of a risen king, and the empty tomb changes our lives from being empty to be filled with purpose. So would you help us struggle for the sake of the mission to forgo momentary satisfaction and to live and love others for you, knowing that our work is not in vain. In your son's name we pray, amen.